SEC fans, this is John Christ, senior writer for Saturday Down South, and welcome to another installment of the SDS podcast. Coming to you from the iHeartMedia studio, WDAE in Tampa, Florida, 620 AM and 95.3 FM. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at SaturdayJC. And our guest for this episode is Aaron Suttles. He covers Alabama for the Tuscaloosa News, so he gets an up-close and personal look at all of those infamous Nick Saban rants. Remember to follow him on Twitter as well, at Aaron Suttles. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. Of course. Before we get started, the Saturday Down South podcast is brought to you by Sweet Hop. Have you ever been to a game and missed the winning touchdown because you were waiting in line for a beer? What about trying to catch up with your buddies, but you're trapped in a row of seats? Thanks to Sweet Hop, you can eliminate these game day distractions by booking a luxury suite online today. Sweet Hop has amazing access for the bowl games taking place throughout this holiday season. And with the SEC dominating this year's lineup, nine out of 14 teams going bowling, you don't want to miss a minute of the action. Sweet Hop is a nationwide marketplace for luxury suite events, helping you get into suites for all your favorite sporting events and concerts as well. Check out their availability for all the postseason bowl games at sweethop.com. That's S-U-I-T-E-H-O-P.com. And now Aaron Suttles. Aaron, first things first, the Crimson Tide, they're going to the college football playoff for the fourth time in four years. But did they truly earn their way in this time? Uh, no. But here's the thing. They wanted to have a fourth spot. And there were no other better alternatives in Alabama, in my opinion. But uh, no, they didn't earn their way in. I don't think you can look at anything they did this season and say, well, they deserve to be there. Um, but I think the argument is the committee had what was tasked with finding a fourth team and of the teams being considered, I think probably Alabama was the best option. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. This is just one of those years where you need four teams, but only three truly earned it from a resume perspective. I absolutely believe Alabama is one of the best four teams in America. You just look at who they beat and the way the schedule played out. And, uh, you know, it was just a little funky this year. But how confident were you before the selection was actually made that Alabama would indeed be a part of the playoff? And how confident do you think the coaching staff and players in the locker room were? I think it, it was probably, you know, 60-40 that Alabama was not going. I thought it would be Ohio State. Really? Um, yeah, I, I just thought, for, for some whatever reason, Ohio State is a national brand. Um, they're a conference champion. When they played well this season, they played really well. Um, one day somebody's going to do a deep dive. Somebody's going to do an autopsy on this 2000. 17 Ohio State team to find out what went wrong because they had way too much talent to play so inconsistently week in and week out um, or, or lack of consistency. So I, I thought they would um, find a way to get them in, I, but they didn't. So, uh, you know, Nick Saban was so worried about it that he wasn't even watching the announcement. Uh, he was with a recruit in a car um, on his way to the football facility and was met when he got there by one of his staffers had told him that they had been selected to the college football playoff. So I don't know if he expected to get in or not. I just know he wasn't worried about it. Um, he's not something he took time out of his day to, to watch. You know, talking to Minka Fitzpatrick last night, he said he was so nervous. He went up to the football facility thinking 
he'd be joined by, you know, 85 of his teammates or 84 of his teammates, and he got there, and there are only two other guys in the locker room. And, and he, he said he thought the guys were probably like him, that they were so nervous and they didn't want to be around anybody else if they didn't get in. So um, that's how Mika experienced in the locker room with, with two reserve players who don't really play a lot. And, and they found out they got in and were jumping around acting acting like kids. So, you know, I, I don't I don't think a, a lot of Alabama players thought they were getting in. Interesting. Very interesting. That's a different perspective for most everybody on that roster. Let's go back to Saturdays to the Iron Bowl. We all know the result, 26-14 in favor of the Tigers. It seemed like the injuries at linebacker and along the offensive line finally sort of caught up with the Tide. That wasn't the team we had seen in the previous 11 games. But did you see anything that may have led to such a disappointing performance? Was it was it strictly those injuries we talked about, or was there anything else that just, again, this wasn't the same team in Crimson we had seen the previous two and a half months or so? You know, I think a, a few things, actually. And, and the first thing people don't really realize until you've been in that environment, um, when Auburn's good and their crowd is up for a big game, it's as a tough environment as any place I've ever been. Very, very underrated. Place. When they're up for a big game, go ask Georgia. When they're up for a big game, that place is unlike any other place I've been. I mean, it rates right up there with LSU on a Saturday night. It, it's a difficult environment, game day environment. The students are loud. They do a, a great job of on-campus and in-game, in-stadium, and um, pace of, uh, of how they present the game. It's loud. It stays loud. So I, I think that's where it starts. And then, too, um, you know, they come out the first series – the, the left guard, J.C. Hassenauer, gets injured. And Ross Piercebaker was already a little dinged up. So now you're dinged up at, at left guard. I didn't think the play calling was particularly – didn't have a, a good pace to it. They come out first drive of the second half, and they run it right down Auburn's throat. They take the lead with a touchdown. And then they go away from the run. Um, and then the defense, you know, um, I didn't really – I thought they did a pretty good job against the run. I didn't think it was on the, on the linebackers at all, though – the injury certainly mounted up. Everyone knows that. But I thought Jared Stidham had the best game of his career. I mean, he completed better than 75% of his passes. And so you put all of that together. I mean, Alabama is going back to take the lead, uh, driving down the field. They get a pass interference called inside the Auburn, I believe, 15-yard line. Uh, it's a key third down, and they get a delay of game. Uh, I think that contributed – to it, uh, the, uh, as I mentioned, Jordan Hare at the Jordan Hare Stadium, but just how loud it is. Um, that contributed to me to out of character play for Jalen Hurts. He's an experienced quarterback. They get a delay a game, and then they have to settle for a field goal, and then they botch the field goal. So, um, you know, it's like any other football game. Two or three plays probably decided it, but Auburn just won up front, and and that's where football is always going to be one, no matter how you dress it up or present it. Football is a line of scrimmage game, and, and, and Auburn won. Now, is there any reason to believe that a blueprint now exists for maybe beating the 2017 version of the Crimson Tide? Or was this just one of those days where Auburn was the better football team and executed better? Yeah, but I think that blueprint's been out there for a while, and Clemson certainly knows, <laughs> Clemson certainly knows that blueprint. Um, you know, there's no, there's no trick to it. You just If you can stop Alabama from running the football and you put it – put the offense uh, and make them have to throw the ball. Their offensive line is not not all that great at pass blocking. They're, they're okay 
but I wouldn't call them elite by any means. And you put them in, in long third down situations. Uh, and then you convert your thirds down on, on offense. That's been the key. I mean, you go back to, to Clemson in, last year. They ran 99 plays. Um, they wore Alabama down. You go back to Auburn. Uh, Auburn wore Alabama down. They, Mississippi State, I know they didn't win that game this year, but they wore Alabama down. And, and this, this isn't uh, – this isn't a typical Alabama defense that we've seen. They're still very elite. They're still very good, ranked uh, one or two in the country in most major defensive categories. But it's not the unit where you could not run the football on. I mean, last year you could not run the football. This year you're not going to have a ton of success, but you can get those three-yard runs or four-yard runs that leave you in third and two rather than third and seven. And those are a heck of a lot easier to, uh, to convert. Now, we have to talk about Jalen Hurts a little bit, the fabulous quarterback. I've been of the impression basically all season that he is the most underappreciated player in the SEC. He's the reigning offensive player of the year in the conference. But this year, according to the AP's vote, and I believe also the FWAA vote, which I was a part of, he didn't make first or second team at the quarterback position. Why are we so quick to criticize this young man? Why does he seem to never truly get the credit he deserves? There's even a fringe minority of the Alabama fan base that every time this kid throws an incompletion or two, you wonder why Tua Tungavailoa isn't getting loose over on the sideline. I will spend the rest of my career trying to figure out the, the, the animus toward Jalen Hurts from, from a certain section of the Alabama fan base. And trust me, I hear them. They're very vocal. Um, they blame Jalen for Alabama having lost the national championship game last year, which is the Mind preposterous, obviously, like just absurd. Um, the kid's thrown one interception all year. Now, the counter argument to that is he's not because he's so um, so conservative with where, when he chooses to let it go that he's not putting himself in a ton of risk. And, and there's something to be said for that, and that limits the Alabama offense to some extent. But I mean, the kid's a winner, um, and some people you just can't please, and. Um, I'll, I'll never understand why um, Jalen isn't more valued by some of his own fans. But in terms of why he didn't have any SEC awards this year, I mean, I think last year when he, when he won SEC Offensive Player of the Year, there wasn't a ton of options. Um, and that's not taking anything away from what Jalen did. But this year you got Drew Lockett, Missouri, who's throwing it crazy. He's got a ton of touchdowns, um, you know, there were well, there's better quarterback play in the league this year too. So um, I, I think that's part of it. And when you look at you know, you know transfer coming in like Jarrett Stidham, who going in for the SEC championship game, and those votes were due. I know for the AP, I was encouraged to get my vote in on the Friday before SEC uh, championship. Um, you know, Jarrett Stidham's a guy that that looks like he's leading his team to win an SEC championship into a playoff berth. Um, Drew Locke. You know, so just more options this year. I think that's why Jalen didn't get uh, any all-SEC teams. Now let's move to the other side of the ball. The, the front seven is always going to be crazy talented as long as Nick Saban has that job. But you know what? This unit, to me, I don't cover the team like you do, but I did watch every snap this season. It just didn't seem to be – just passing the eye test in terms of the down-to-down dominance. And maybe it's just because the impossible standards set before from guys like Jonathan Allen and A'shaun Robinson the last couple of years up front. And, 
you know, Reuben Foster and Reggie Ragland, just incredible at the linebacker position. Like you said, I know the stats look good. They're first or second in the country in a lot of incredible categories, but how did guys like Deron Payne and maybe Deshaun Hand live up to it? We all assumed they were going to be the next superstars. I know Payne in particular made first team all SEC. I didn't really agree with that, but just your value for the front seven this year, throw out the stats, just how they look to you compared to the guys they're replacing who were in the league right now. I think they were um, well beyond serviceable, and they're really good players. It's just, as you mentioned, look at how many how many guys from that front seven they lost in the last two years. I mean, let's just take last year. Let's look at difference makers. And I'm not talking just guys that lost eligibility. I'm talking about Every guy I'm going to mention was a difference maker on that defense. Ryan Anderson, Tim Williams, Dalvin Tomlinson, Jonathan Allen, Reuben Foster. Um, and then you get in the back end of the defense, Marlon Humphrey, uh, Eddie Jackson. Seven guys that, that not just good guys, difference makers. No one in the country could withstand that type of personnel loss. But um, I thought Deron Payne had a pretty good season. I, I thought Deshaun Hand had a disappointing season. Um, you know, I hate to criticize a college kid who's trying as hard as he can, but I'm got to call it like I see it. I just didn't have the season that a lot of people maybe expected him to have. Um, I think I think if he had had a healthy Terrell Lewis, that would have helped this defense. I, I think this kid's going to be a monster um, when he comes back and he's finally ever healthy. Um, and that's the difference to me between this defense is they're not as good against the run. They're still very good. They're still elite. They're just not running into a a brick wall over and over and over, which is what we've seen the last two years. And that helps teams, as I mentioned, it puts them in a a more manageable third down, a more manageable down and distance. And then second, the the sacks have fallen off. Now, they're still, I think, in the top 20 or 30 nationally in sacks. But the last two seasons, they they had 50, 52, 55, something like that. They're in the 50s. Uh, This year, they're in the 30s. And so the pass rush is not there, and you know that affects your entire defense. That, that helps teams be more successful in the passing game. The longer that your corners have to hold coverage, um, it doesn't create as many negative plays. It doesn't create as many turnovers. So um, that's the difference to me: is that they weren't as good. It's a slight drop off in the run defense, um, and, a, and, a, and a more than slight drop off in the pass rush. A significant drop off in the pass rush. Now let's move on to the coaching staff. Clearly the turnover at the offensive coordinator spot was very interesting to watch moving from Lane Kiffin and then for a single game, Steve Sarkeesian. Brian Dable comes in. I believe he hadn't been at the college level for like 17 years. One of the more interesting coaching hires in the entire conference. And we talked about him a lot in the offseason, but then the season started and he didn't hear his name very much. That told me he did a pretty good job making the transition, taking over for what he inherited. But again, you mentioned the play calling in the Iron Bowl wasn't as good as it could be. Just overall, your assessment of Dable, and is this a guy who's you know kind of testing the waters for a year or two in Tuscaloosa, or do you think this is a job he could have for a while? That's a good question. I don't, I don't have my arms around that yet. I thought for the most part he did a pretty good job, you know, coaching staff like an assistant coach or a coordinator or if you're a cornerback if you don't get talked about that's probably a good thing that means you've done your job if you're a cornerback and they're constantly mentioning you that means they're throwing at you a lot and you may end up giving up a lot of plays uh same thing with a coordinator if they're not mentioning you 
Like, we didn't hear anybody talk about Jeremy Pruitt really a ton last year, and that's because there was no drop-off. In fact, I thought I thought Jeremy did did better than Kirby did as a defensive coordinator. Um, so, so that's a good thing. With Brian, there were times this year uh, where they just, you know, were, were on such a roll. And, and here's where I don't – when I said I don't have my arms around it, I, I look at this Alabama offense, and I don't see an identity. And – they scored a lot of points against teams that weren't very good. Um, they did what they were supposed to against most teams. But I just don't see an identity that when things aren't going well, we can hang our hat on this. What What is that this year? Without, if, they, if they need a drive, where do they hang their hat? And I look at that offensive line. I look at that stable of running backs, and it should be running the football. But And it is at times, but it's not the identity – that I'm used to seeing from this Alabama offense. When, when, when they had success running in the iron ball, it was on the perimeter. And, you, you know, I know the Auburn's defense the front's really good. It makes a lot of sense to run on the perimeter. You should mix it up. But it's just a different feel from what we've seen from Alabama in the past. So I, I don't know what their offensive identity is. And, you know, I, I think that comes back to the coordinator, and I think it comes back to play calling. Um, it's almost like the kid in, in his playroom – and he's got so many different toys that he wants to play with that he doesn't have a favorite. It's kind of what this Alabama offense, outside of Calvin Ridley, and I think that's more a byproduct of, of Jalen Hurts not getting to his second and third reads as, as often. Outside of Calvin Ridley, I, I don't know who the guy is on this offense. It should be Damian Harris. It absolutely should be Damian Harris, but it's not. Um, he got six carries in the Iron Bowl. Average eight and a half yards a carry. Got six carries in the Iron Bowl. Um and that's because they're doing a running back by committee. So Scarborough got six, Josh Jacobs got six, and then you know Jalen Hurts had 20 or something. So uh, I just don't see an identity with this Alabama offense, and I think that's something that, that that's plagued them in, in games where teams have good defenses. Now, as you know, we're not recording this show live. It's currently Thursday morning. The podcast will be running in a couple of hours here at the site. But between the time I talk to you and the – this thing does go live, it's possible that Jeremy Pruitt is going to be named the new head coach at Tennessee. He seems to have emerged as a leading candidate. He's never been a head coach before, but his reputation on defense is unparalleled. National championship as a coordinator at Florida State, did great things at Georgia, and a couple of stints at Alabama, and everyone loves what he can do. But what do you see from him potentially as a head coaching candidate? Is there any chance that this is Kirby Smart Part 2? And he goes to a sleeping giant, and bam, you got a player in the East. Or A, is he inheriting potentially a much tougher ship to turn around at Tennessee? And B, maybe not quite as ready to make that leap like Kirby Smart obviously was. I'll start off. I love Jeremy Pruitt. And, and what I'm going to say is going to surprise you. I think Jeremy Pruitt's a better defensive coordinator than Kirby Smart. Yeah, you hinted um, to that earlier. And, and, and I'll give my reason. I think, and that's taking nothing away from Kirby. Kirby was great. But Kirby was passive to me. Jeremy's aggressive. And uh, I always looked at Alabama's defense, and they were great. I mean, this is me nitpicking. But I always looked at Alabama's defense under Kirby, and I said, Alabama's got better athletes on defense than 90% of the teams they play. Why are you being passive? Let your athletes go make plays. You know, be aggressive. You know, there was a uh, – ask the Alabama fan base. There's a, there's a funny saying that, that third and Kirby, and that means on third and 12, third and 15, they're going to give it up. It's third and Kirby. Um, and a lot of that was because they were being passive. Jeremy, you know, he may get beat, but he's not going to be passive. 
and, and I like that about him. I like his aggressiveness and how, hey, I got five and four stars all over the field. Um, I'm not going to just sit back. And, and if you beat me, you beat me. I'll tip my hat. But you're going to have to beat me doing it that way. That's, that's why I prefer. Um, Jeremy, in terms of can he beat Kirby part two, uh, I think he can have some success. But Tennessee's not a ready-made turnkey program. Georgia always was. I mean, there are people who will tell you now that, that Georgia has ascended to the top program in the SEC. For a long, long time, it was Florida because of the recruiting base. And um, now people will tell you it's Georgia. Georgia's recruiting base, the, the, the growth in the Atlanta area and in the state of Georgia, you don't have to leave your state to recruit. And you've got now that you know, I think Jeremy, ironically enough, I think Jeremy Pruitt helped get this started in Athens of, we got to be aggressive. We, we we have to build our facilities. We have to be more aggressive on the recruiting trail. We can't just sit back um, and, and think we're Georgia. People are going to come to us. So you know, they, Jeremy got that process started under Mark Richt, and and Kirby's just accelerated it. But I don't see that at Tennessee. Uh, I see a, a proud fan base. I see they a big stadium. They don't have a natural recruiting base. When Tennessee was at its best in the nineties. They were going to Atlanta, and, and, and they were a national recruiting brand. They're not a national brand anymore. Um, and, and now they're having to have to fight in Atlanta with Georgia, Auburn, Alabama, Florida State, uh, Clemson, South Carolina. Um, all those teams uh, supplement their recruiting base where Tennessee used to thrive. Um, so that has changed. But Jeremy, as a, as a head coach, um, We'll see. You know, I, I think the one thing I like about Jeremy, he's, he's his own man. Um, and one thing that would concern me about going into Tennessee um, is, is Phil Fulmer being the AD and how much control do I have of my program. If you're gonna if you're gonna make me head coach, don't tell me that I have to take T. Martin as my offensive coordinator. Not if I decide to take T. Martin, that's one thing. But I'm not going into a situation where I'm looking over my shoulder and you're making staff changes in in, in your. Uh, um, looking over my shoulder at, at every move, and, and because Jeremy will play that. Jeremy is unlike any other Saban assistant. He is his own man. He is not in the Saban mold um, in terms of what we've seen in previous Saban assistants. And I like that. I think you need to have that individualism, and Jeremy certainly has that. He grew up in Northeast Alabama, um, which is a mountain country just like Knoxville. Um, very similar cultures. He understands, um, you know, the challenges up there, but. I think it all comes down. You got to compete against Kirby <laughs> at Georgia, and and that's just difficult because you're um, you're going after the same athletes. Jeremy's an elite recruiter, and I have no doubt he's going to hire a staff that can get after it on the recruiting trail. And I guess a, a lot of it comes down to who's he going to hire for his offensive coordinator. His defense is going to be good, um, but who's going to be his offensive coordinator, and who are they going to get? to run things on offense. I don't think it's a, it's as um, turnkey as Georgia, um, and that's just the challenges of being in Tennessee right now. Now I have to ask you a Lane Kiffin question. You're around this guy for a couple of years. You talk about someone who's not a Saban guy or in that mold, but he's become this comic book character since he's gone to FAU. And his use of Twitter is just brilliant. He's a must-follow. And I don't know if he truly believes everything he puts out there, but the guy finds attention, and he's putting it on his program, and he knows how to score points. FAU went from 3-9 and nine to 9-3 and three immediately. I'm curious what the Alabama fan base relationship is with a guy like Lane Kiffin now, and specifically Nick Saban. 
Clearly, he's not active on Twitter or anything like that, but he still gets needles from him time to time. I'm curious what that's like now, a year or so removed. I think the Alabama fan base has a love-hate relationship with Lane. Obviously, he, he rewrote several offensive records during his time at Alabama. They won three three SEC championships. He produced three SEC Offensive Players of the Year. I mean, some of the stuff unprecedented, what he was doing. Um you know who I like in Lane Kiffin in terms of just running a program is, is John Gruden. I, I, I grew up a big Tampa Bay Bucs fan, and, and John Gruden was a phenomenal play caller. Um, but John Gruden, to me, was never a great head coach. Um, it, he always wanted more players. He, there was always strife with the GM, and there was never a player that John Gruden didn't like. I think that's kind of where Lane Kiffin is in, in terms of, I think his ceiling is offensive coordinator. I don't think he's a man that can lead a program. Um, now, he, he did a great job this year, but for, for longevity, um, he's got some maturing to do. He's certainly entertaining on Twitter, but um, if you're a Power 5 team, do you want your head coach out there doing that? It's, it's unorthodox. Maybe it's the new wave and we'll see more of it. Uh, I, I just look at a guy who is interpersonal communication with players is strange. He's he's, um, he's kind of an introvert in person, which is hard to believe. But, you know, talking to his former players, um, he's a difficult guy to communicate with. And if you're going to run a program, you better be a good communicator. And, and Lane's not a lead at that. But there is no questioning the fact that I think he's a savant. I think he's an absolute Bobby Fisher type in terms of the chess world of calling plays. I mean, he can do it on the fly with a play clock running down. He, he diagnoses what a defense does, and he's going to get the perfect play call. He, he's about as good as I've ever seen at calling plays. But in terms of running a program, he has some shortcomings. Yeah, I think I'm in agreement on that. His name was thrown out for Florida State. I'm a Florida State guy, and yeah, I love him as an OC. I don't know if I want him as a top face on the totem pole. Uh, my last line of questioning for you, I have to get a little deep and dirty about this goofy thing that you and I do for a living. The media is accused of being terrified of Nick Saban. He doesn't answer questions so much as get to the mic and just say what he wants to say. And we all have the rants that show up on YouTube here and there. Two years ago at Media Days, we both were there, and he's in that giant room, and not one person asked him a single question about the Cam Robinson situation until Paul Feinbaum did on the air, and we had that altercation everyone remembers. But how would you describe your relationship with Coach Saban, and how do you think he would describe his relationship with you? Um, not good. Um, <laughs> and, and, and listen, I say this, there could be all of my listening to this. I'm not um, – I don't seek to have an adversarial relationship with Nick Saban, but it's also not my job to be Nick Saban's friend. Correct. It's not my job to be his enemy, but it's not my job to be his friend. And so when I – I think the thing that sealed our relationship was when I um, asked him, I don't know, three or four years ago about a player he had uh, – it was a National Signing Day press conference. He had signed a player that had been dismissed from Georgia for a domestic violence um, incident, and I asked him about it, and I asked him in a way he didn't like and uh, he's held it against me ever since, and that's fine. Um, the Cam Robinson situation is funny because a lot of people don't know SEC many days. Nick Saban has a private um, – he meets with the, the local beat writers before he goes on the national stage, and we'd already asked that question. So we, we had our answer to it. Um, but, listen, he, he tries to – he has a message. He's trying to control the message. And 
when he does that, he's he's trained so much of the media to 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 ask questions that he wants to to answer. So much of, of dealing with Nick Saban is knowing how to ask a question. You can ask a tough question. It's all in the wording. It's bizarre. He he will seize upon a key phrase or one word, and that can set him off. Or he'll you can't ask long questions because he doesn't listen to the whole thing. He hears what he wants to hear, and he goes off. And sometimes you can ask a perfectly fine question, but he wants to deliver a message to his team, so he hijacks it and, and just takes the steering wheel and goes completely left. Um, dealing with Nick Saban is it's you've got to come correct. You've got to put some thought into your question. And you better have two or three questions lined up because the person in front of you, um, the way it is at Alabama, it's not an open room where you just shout out questions. They, they give you the mic. So if you're fifth on, on the list and two or three guys have asked the question you're going to ask, um, well, you better come up, you better have uh, multiple questions ready. So uh, it's not for the faint of heart because you never know what's going to set him off. And, but, I, but I also think if you're a reporter, you, you, you can't care what's going to set him off because at the end of the day you're there to provide a service to your customers which are your readers and, and they're fans of their team and they want answers and so uh, like today there's later this afternoon i'll be at the college football hall of fame uh, hall of fame and for the, the cfp press conference with the four head coaches and nick saban's going to be asked to ask about jeremy pruitt he may he doesn't want to answer that when talking about the playoffs but tough i mean that's that's the job that's why you get paid 11 million dollars this year if you can't talk about your defensive coordinator and what your plans are for that position well that's not my problem aaron very very insightful stuff thank you so much for joining me on the show and i hope to be able to return the favor anytime all right john take care that was aaron Suttles. he covers alabama for the tuscaloosa news as far as i'm concerned it's probably the most challenging beat in all of america remember to follow him on twitter at aaron Suttles. and thank you for listening to the saturday down south podcast special thanks to our friends at wdae in tampa as well as our sponsor sweethop.com if you like what you heard you can subscribe on itunes or wherever your favorite podcast can be found be sure to give the show a rating as well My name is John Christ, and for all SEC all the time, visit SaturdayDownSouth.com.